Thank you, Ronnie. Believe it or not, that is an uplifting passage. We will get to that in a moment. Um, it's also a passage full of anguish. I want to thank Kevin and Jill and Kaylee and Dana for filling in for Kendra this morning. Great job. Just thanks for leading us in, in worship. Just wonderful, wonderful. Um, let's pray together. I, I, before, we, well, before we pray, I've got to mention this. Last week, we've got um, baby announcements, three baby announcements this last week from people we love and, and uh, grandparents. And uh, Kevin and Colette, by the way, are grandparents twice over about four days apart, uh, different moms, okay? <laughs> one's their daughter, one's their son, and then we got some other uh, people we love, uh, you know, with baby announcements, and it just got me thinking about children and just how, how important it is, and just want to encourage you, if you've got no kids or you have kids, grandkids, bring them on Sunday mornings. I mean, we've got a, a wonderful uh, program for the kids here at Shepherd of the Valley, and um, Don is just a, a man who loves children, and you can just tell if you've ever worked with him, been around him, that he is just, uh, he's in his element when he's with kids. And it just got me thinking about children, and uh, so that's kind of where I'm, I'm headed for uh, this, in praying this morning. Father, I, I thank you for the millions of people who will learn from the Bible today across the world we ask you to please speak powerfully to convict and to comfort and to conform our minds to yours. And Jesus, we, I pray today that for the children who are learning about you, not just here at this church, but also around the world, we thank you that you have always put children first. And uh, we ask you to help us to be more trusting and humble and playful like them. The Holy Spirit, we we ask you to revive us today, that you inspire us with ideas, inspire us with words, inspire us with patience and humility and gentleness. Uh, especially, I pray for those who are teaching and discipling children, who are educators and teachers and parents who are, are, are raising children uh, to love you. And now I'm going to ask you guys out here in the congregation, just about 15, 20 seconds of silence, to think of people who God has brought to your mind who are teaching and raising children right now, and just send a short prayer and hold them before the throne for a few minutes uh, in prayer. Father, we ask that this day that you bring a Sabbath rest to our hearts and our homes. We ask that your image in us be restored, that our imagination in you be restored. We ask that the weight of material things be lightened around us. We ask that we come to know your grace and embrace our smallness in the arms of our Father and your infinite graces, greatness. And so, Father, we ask that your word feed us this morning that your spirit lead us, and we have a new look and a new vision of who you are and what you have done for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, I have often said that um, I probably learned more about human nature 
in this restaurant I used to work at as a teenager than I have writing any number of papers in anthropology or any other theology class. Uh, I think I've shared this before. I kind of went through high school. I started working in a restaurant at 15, and, and uh, we worked in, a, worked in a pretty large restaurant. Uh, it was a, one of those theme restaurants with the railhead is what it was called, where they put railroad cars together to make this huge restaurant. And we would do about 800 to 1,000 dinners a night. And it was, about, it was a big pool of human beings in this place, and just a variety of people working there at night. I think of the, you know, our, our kitchen manager who spent most of the evening stomping through the kitchen and yelling at people, thinking the world was collapsing around him and all that. And, and I think of the, the people who worked in the kitchen, the, old, the undocumented old men who washed the dishes. Uh, there were high school students like me, and it was really a, you know, a night it was for us, this naive, uh, church-going, middle-class kid to be in this pool of humanity was really interesting. I learned more about humanity there. And, and there were high school, other high school students. There were high school dropouts. There were recovering drug addicts. There were uh, non-recovering drug addicts, uh, ex-convicts. Um, you know, just, you can imagine just a variety of, of people that worked there. And then you had the, the only women, the only jobs open to women in this restaurant were they were in mini skirts being cocktail waitresses or hostesses. And uh, then, uh, then you had the waiters, and the waiters were like the classy guys of the, of the restaurant. They, were the, they were usually had their second job at night, and, or they were students. We had law students, medical students, and there were even a couple of seminary, Dallas Seminary students who worked there as well. And one guy just kind of took me under his wing, and we'd go fishing at night. And after you got through with all that, we'd finish up cleaning up about midnight, and your adrenaline's going, you know, after doing, you know, throwing things around and all that stuff, your adrenaline's going. So we'd always go somewhere after that. And so we'd go to Don Carter's All Night Bowling Alley, or we would go to Dan, Dan's Lakewood Cafe, the only restaurant I knew that was really open all night. And then there was Dunkin' Donuts. And it was in those places that you see people at night that you don't normally see in the day. Uh, you see people at, um, you see ex-convicts ex, um, uh, there, you see uh, off-dirty policemen, uh, you see working women, uh, you see, uh, that's where I first saw my first uh, cross-dresser was at one of these places, you know, and for me, uh, this middle-class high school kid, you know, it was just all exotic, and I just didn't know what to think, and it was, um, and I realized that night people are different than day people, and night people, I mean, they still have the same desires, they have the same longing for, for conversation and companionship and love and all those things, but they know things that day people don't know. And, uh, and you see things, and we see things that a lot of day people don't see. And it was all a, just kind of a, an eye-opening experience, just being around and in that, in that kind of an atmosphere. Uh, very, very odd. Um, it's, the night is just, has just an abundance of overtones and undertones about it. Uh, darkness. Has a, has a lot of undertones about it. When you just say the word dark or darkness, we kind of naturally have these ideas. We, when I describe something in the dark, it, it can be um, scary. You know, I mean, if you've never slept in a tent and heard armadillos rustling around outside, they sound like people, and you know that you've got a, a mass murderer on the outside of your tent, and you're hearing an armadillo, because it's night, you can't see, you don't see anything. Uh, if I were to describe a movie to you and say that it's dark, or I would say, oh, it's a comedy, but it's a dark comedy, I don't have to give you a lot of details. You just kind of know what that's about. 
Um, if, you, if I were to tell you that I'm in a dark place right now, you kind of get this idea. You know that I'm not doing too well. Uh, and and you, nobody wants to be in the dark. We want to be in the know. And that's the kind of the idea that we have at, at darkness. And it's, uh, we have this, this instinct to want to turn away, to, to run away. Just, we're kind of just principled that way. It's something to be avoided um, that we just don't really like. We moved into the house we live in now. We, the bedroom is, is a kind of restored attic. And the first thing we did was put a light down at the bottom of the stairs and the top of the stairs with, with uh, moving sensors on them so we could make those, uh, you know, those nighttime trips to the bathroom you know, and not fall down the stairs. It's something that we just kind of want to avoid. Um, the solstice, summer, the summer solstice is actually the saddest day of, of the year for me because I know that's when the days start getting shorter. And, and it's just something about it, we just turn away, we, we kind of avoid it. Well, we're on the third servant song in Isaiah today. And we discover that the servant of Isaiah is no stranger to darkness either. Not only is he not a stranger to darkness, he actually participates in the darkness. He actually goes through the darkness like we go through the darkness. And he comes out on the other side, and he shows us how he models for us how to do this. And I've mentioned before that Isaiah takes the servant songs, and he starts off kind of a broad view, and he starts using this zoom lens to sort of focus in on him. And that's what we're kind of seeing here in chapter 50, Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah starts off in 42, where we have this royal picture of, of the servant. And it kind of get the idea that it's Israel and that he's going to establish justice and righteousness on the earth. And so you get this broad view of what this is going to happen. And then you get to, to chapter 44 and you say, well, it looks like the power is transferred from Israel to a person. It's still Israel, but it's like this Israelite, this ideal Israelite. And then we get this unexpected view when he goes down even further in chapter 50, where it's, yes, He's going to bring all this, this justice and this new beginning, but it looks like he's suffering, and he's going through darkness, and he ends up telling us that it's dark. And then it's shocking next week when we get to Isaiah 53. And so if you're following through this, if you're an Israelite, if you're, if you're a Jew reading through this, and it kind of gets darker and darker and darker, and yet it at the same time it gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And it's really surprising what he goes through. And so we zero in on this person, and what I think we're, we're going to get out of this chapter, chapter 50 of this picture of the servant, is that oftentimes it's the darkness is the place where we actually see God most clearly. It's actually the darkness where God seems to reveal himself, and we get to know who he is. And that's what we kind of see in this picture of Isaiah. And so I've titled this, Learning to See in the Dark. Because this is what the model, this is what the prophet, this is what the servant does for us in this third song. And it begins in, in kind of introducing it with these words of anguish. And if you want to understand the prophets and the language of the prophets, it's easy for us in a in 21st century Western church to read these prophets and see nothing but anger in God or he's like this God who's just out for revenge or all this kind of things. I think we're misunderstanding that. There is some anger in it, don't get me wrong, but we need to read it as words of anguish. These are words of hurting, that God is, is aching over this. 
And he starts off telling Israel, he says, you're wandering around in Zion like I've abandoned you. You're wandering around like a, a woman who's just received the certificate of divorce and you're out wandering around like her. Or you, you're wandering around like, like I have just sold you into slavery. And he says, where is the certificate of divorce according to what you think? Where is that bill of sale where I sold you into slavery? Where is it? You're right, there is none. Because I didn't do that. And he's saying, you got into this mess. You got into this. I didn't leave you. You left me. And these are words of anguish coming from God's heart because the people that he loved have left him and gone after idolatry. And we'll look a little bit more in this later on, but this is what he's getting at. And then he goes to these rhetorical questions. He goes, is my hand too short to save? Have I lost power? Am I weaker than I was before when I led you out of Egypt? Has something happened? Have I lost my power? And he goes on to say, gives her this, certif- this, 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 this picture of I could dry up the streams, you know, and I could make it a desert. And it's kind of iffy what he's dealing with here. He may be saying that I'm the creator and I can uncreate just as easy as I can create. Or he may be saying, he may be trying to draw or kind of a, a, a recollection of the Exodus. But either way, he is saying that, do I not have the power or not? Do I have the power to re- rescue you? Do I have the power to redeem you or not? Did my arm suddenly get shorter? Did my power suddenly leave? No. He says no. And then he talks about the servant. And the servant is the revealer of Yahweh. And what I said that, that this, this is not as a downer of a passage as we think it is, It is in a way, but it's this revealer of who Yahweh is, the God of Yahweh. He starts off saying that that he is this this prophet. He is the revealer of who Yahweh is in his word. And so in this third song, we got to get a better glimpse of, of who this servant is, this Israelite is. And before I go any further, hopefully we know by now we're talking about Jesus Christ, okay? That's who we're talking about here. Jesus clearly saw himself as the servant. Isaiah is prophesying this as this is the Messiah who is coming. And he says, <clears throat> he says this, is, this is who I am. I'm revealing myself to him. And one of the things that jumped out at me this week when I was looking at this passage is how many times he said the Lord God, or literally the Lord Yahweh. And I think what he's getting at here is that this servant reveals the heart of Yahweh. This servant reveals who God is. There is this intimate relationship between God and and the servant, Yahweh and the servant. And of course, in a Trinitarian theology, we know we're talking about God himself. We're talking about the incarnation. He's the revealer of Yahweh. And he says, turn back, turn back to me because Yahweh is still here. And this is my faithful servant. And so he's, he's describing the servant as sort of a, he's sort of a, a standing apart and, a, and over Israel. And yet at the same time, He's participating with them in the suffering and in the darkness. And he goes on, he says, the Lord God provides all these things. He's, the Lord God provides, he says, first of all, it, well, we get back here. He says, first of all, it, he provides the commission. He calls the servant out to be his revealer, to show us who God is. He commissions him to be a prophet. He says that I have got this message to both tell things the way they are, and also to, to, to sustain you, to comfort you. 
I've been given this charge, this commission to come out. And then he says, the Lord God has also given me words. He's given me what to say. I reveal what God is saying and wants to say to us. He said, every morning I wake up ready to listen to what God has to say. And I hear what he says, and I tell you what he says. He's given me the words to say. He provides the words. He also provides the help. He says, this task that the servant has taken on, this path that he has taken is one of suffering, one of humiliation, and one of scorn. And he said, but Yah, Yahweh helps me. He provides me in the midst of my anguish, in spite of it all. That the servant himself is going through the darkness. And finally, he says, the Lord God has also given me vindication. That the people who are calling me guilty, the people who are saying that I am guilty, he says, they will pass. They will be, they'll be like this threadbare shirt that's just basically food for moths. He says, they will not, their, their verdict means nothing. What means is the verdict of God, of Yahweh himself. And he says, I get vindication from Yahweh. And we know that because the people who claimed he was guilty, who pronounced him guilty, who pronounced him humiliated and scornful, the ones who killed him, he was vindicated by the resurrection. That he really was intimately involved with this Yahweh, the God of the covenant. And so what he's telling Israel is that this servant is so intimately involved with Yahweh that he's basically like looking at Yahweh himself. That he's basically like listening to Yahweh himself with his words. And then he ends this, the ends this section in verse 10 and 11 that this is how you get through the darkness. This is how you get through the wet darkness. He says, who among you fears the Lord? Who among you obeys the words of the servant? The servant... The servant who, who walks in darkness, who walks with no light, and yet he trusts in the name of the Lord. He relies on his God. This is what the servant does. He walks in darkness. And the song ends with, with the prophet Isaiah saying, or perhaps it's the voice of the servant, we're not really sure, who's saying, look, you can go ahead and light your own fire. You can go ahead and create your own light and follow along with that and, and use that to, to get around instead of Yahweh, instead of God, instead of the words of the servant. You can create your own, own fire, but it's going to be the worst for you if you do it. It's not going to be good for you. It'll be a lot worse. I mean, we would say, he said, basically, he's saying you can create your own fire to know, to, to know the difference, but... Um, you know, you're going to get burned by your own fire, basically. We would say, in English maybe, in an English medium, idiom, God will hold your feet to the fire. And he's saying, that's, you can do that if you want, but you're the worst for it. The song then launches into chapters 52 and 53, and I'm just going to give you a summary of this because I think it's important as we bridge over to 53 next week and finish this. He says, this is what it's like to go through the darkness. And he's saying, think about it. He's saying, look back to your history. Look back to what happened. He said, you, you constantly desired more and more and more. He says, I, I, I took you out of Egypt and I gave you a land of milk and honey, but you wanted more. 
you wanted more influence, more power. And so you said, give us a king. And so I gave you a king. And by the most, except with a few exceptions, the kings were, were completely disastrous. They became thirsty for nothing but power and greed and idolatry. And he says, he goes on in these chapters, he says, you know, look at what's happened. The temple has become a place of idolatry, a place of robbers and thieves. You've enslaved your own people. You've discarded the poor. You've prostituted your own women. This is, what's, this is what happens when you follow your own light. It's worse for you. And so he's given us these two ways of wisdom or, or, or unwise path. And he says, you can travel this unwise path with your own light, but this is what happens. You end up discarding each other, treating them like garbage, or you can follow the path of wisdom. And he says, remember, look back, think back, how I took this old man and this old woman and made this huge nation out of it. Think back, how I delivered you out of Egypt. Think back, remember this. And then he calls them to wake up. Rouse yourself. There's a new beginning. There is a darkness, but there is a new beginning coming. There is a new creation coming. So he says, dress like a bride. Dress like a bride in joy and, 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 and ecstasy. And you're, you're, like you're getting ready to meet your groom. And over and over again, he keeps saying, sing for joy. Sing with joy. Sing with joy. Sing for joy. And then, of course, that one theme keeps coming back, because I will comfort you. Remember, that's how it all started in chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people. Nakmu, nakmu ami. I, I haven't done this, but I would challenge you, if you're interested, to do a Bible study of where you find the most places of where you see uh, God saying, sing with joy. And apart from the Psalms, I haven't done this, but I would bet that you're going to find most of them in Isaiah 40 to 55. Because he keeps telling this, because this is the new beginning. This is the new beginning. I want to do is revisit chapters 11 and 12. I'm sorry, 10 and 11, of walking through the darkness. If you've ever met a blind person, you know that they get around by sharpening the other senses. And I think Isaiah is telling us here, the servant is, is modeling for us here what it means to sharpen our other senses when we walk in the darkness. When we get through the darkness, this is how we, we do it. Uh, the, Isaiah uses a bunch of literary dualisms, you know, like divorce, marriage, a slavery, redemption, um, disgrace and vindication, lies and truth. And then he also uses darkness and light. And he says, sharpen your other senses. So I just want, as a way of a application as we close, uh, finish up this morning, is that we have to learn to see in the dark. And the Messiah shows us how. The servant shows us how. He's, I think we, we look at this, seeing in the dark begins with humility. It begins with humility. Humility can be exquisite and it can be horrifying. And for the people who need certitude and need certainty, it's horrifying. It's very scary. For the people who think that we need to be certain about all this kind of stuff, that we need to be uh, uh, sure of all this stuff, it's, it's almost unbearable. 
but the gospel doesn't give us clarity and certainty. The scriptures don't give us certainty. They give us something better. They give us a person. They give us a person that we can trust, that we trust and we believe in, where we trust in his, his voice, and we see him and we depend on him, and we learn in the darkness, we learn and experience grace and mercy and, and forgiveness and, yes, love. And that is much, much better than certainty. We want rational A plus B equals C kind of certainty, but the scripture doesn't give us that, but what they do give us is a person. And guess what? We really are saved by faith. It's not through certainty. It's not through, through, through being without a doubt. We are actually trusting by faith, and that takes humility. That takes us being humble and saying, I don't need to know everything. But for some people, that is just impossible to do. It's just unbearable. I need facts. And I think that's one of the reasons why conspiracy theories have just kind of ballooned these days, is because we need something, something that, that, that makes sense of the world, the crazy world. And he's saying, just be humble. And I've known a few humble people in my life. I've known a few humble people, and, and they, are, they are compassionate people. They are people who can't be defeated. They are people who seem to be, uh, have this confident joy about them. And they're also people who are really nice to be around. So it takes humility. Seen in the dark begins to be submissive to what God wants to do, of, not, of realizing we don't have to have everything wired. We don't need to know every single thing that has, that's going to happen or that needs to happen that we relax in that, that we relax in humility. It's a different way. It is a path of grace and faith. The darkness is where we learn to love. It's where we learn to love the servant, and it's where we learn to be loved by the servant. This is where we learn it, in darkness. And, and I wish we could learn these things without it, but I don't know, I don't think we can. This seems to be where we see God. We learn to love. And, and, and we learn to love other people because we start experiencing these things. We start experiencing the darkness for ourselves. We start experiencing those tragedies and those loss and those things that, that, that if I were to describe darkness in one word, I would describe it as estrangement. Estrangement from God. This feeling where God is distant or his voice is not there or we're separated and we can't find him. This is actually where we learn to love, because where we learn to love others, because then the light that we discover in our own darkness, we can help illuminate with other people. And when we talk about Jesus and when we talk about the gospel, it becomes true to life. Because without us going through the darkness, it's just a false testimony. It's just empty words. We're just saying this truth that I'm so sure of, but I've never really experienced it. But in darkness is where we experience it. And the most loving people you will find are people who have been through the darkness and come out the other side. Those people know how to love. They know how to share. The darkness is where we learn to trust. We learn to trust in darkness. We learn to trust the guide. 
when we're in darkness, it really comes down to what do we believe about God and what do we believe about what God does. So whenever we're in darkness, we're wrestling with faith. We're wrestling with God. We don't know what to do. We, you know, but we just, we learn to trust. We learn to trust. And I think we, we Christians use that word with such a, a, a cliche, a lightness, like we don't really know what it means. We just say, just trust God. You're going through a friend with a dark, darkness. Just trust God. We, we almost treat it as like, don't worry about it. It's not that big a deal. Ignore it. But that's not it at all. Trust is not passive. It is not passive at all. Trust is something active, something we do. It's something that's, it means you stand firm. The prophet here described Jesus as, as the servant as setting his face like a flint, solid. I'm not moving. This is what it means to trust. I'm not moving. It also means to continue doing the right thing in spite of the darkness. You keep doing the right thing in spite of the darkness. You walk through the suffering. You walk through the path that the Savior did. You walk through it, and he's walked through it with us. You continue to do the right thing in spite of the darkness. It was the right thing for Rosa Parks to stay seated on that bus. It was the right thing for Amy Carmichael to spend 56 years in India in spite of chronic health issues. It was the right thing to do. That's what it means to trust. It's not passive. It's active. It's not something, ah, don't worry about it. It means you set your face like a flint like a stone. But it also means that you name darkness as darkness. You name evil for what it is. But you don't obsess over it. You obsess over it, you become just like the unbeliever. You become cynical, you become angry. And, you know, you, and no, the thing is, you get that way. When I get that way, when I obsess over it, nobody knows it. But everybody knows it but me. My wife will know it. My friends will know it. But I don't know it. But we name darkness as darkness. We name light as light. And then we continue to trust and move forward. We move forward in the light. And I think, the, oh, sorry. The last thing is the darkness may be the best place to clearly see God. It seems like for us humans, that's really what it takes. It's the place where we clearly see God. Uh, we, can't be, we can't avoid it. We don't have to be people who go into the deep, deep uh, depths of depression. But we all will walk through it. And I don't believe it's anything that we should deny. I don't think it's anything that we should avoid. I don't think it's anything that we should try to explain why we're doing it, why this happens. We don't need to know why we got here. We don't know if it's because of sin or selfishness or stupidity or whether it's because of um, uh, some tragedy or loss or rejection or a failure. Whatever the reason we got here, but we will go through it. Whatever the cause, we look and we see new ways of seeing God. We become aware of the way God works. We become aware of new things that God is doing in our lives. It's this trust in silence. 
when Jesus healed the man that was born blind, he said, I came to give sight to those who cannot see and to make blind and to make blind those who do see. And I always have read that as sort of a punishment sort of thing. Kind of getting after the Pharisees and whatever. And you guys that, that see, you know, I'm going to make you blind. But after looking at this passage this week, I'm kind of starting to look at it a little bit differently. What if Jesus is saying, those who see, I'm making blind so that we are able to sharpen those other senses. Those who see, he's making blind so that we really will be able to see God. What if that's what he's saying? Because I know that when we think we are in the light, I'm saved, I know God, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm not like those people out there, etc. It's so easy to have this cheap confidence about us. It's so easy to, to think that we've got it all figured out. And that I'm right on every single issue. And I'm right on every single thing. And so what happens is that we just said as a, a superficial glance at something, we think we know it. And what if Jesus has come along and say, no, you've got to go through the darkness. You've got to go through the darkness in order to see. In order to really see me, you need to pass through this. And the servant the Savior, the Messiah, who stands apart from us, who stands over us, decided to be with us and go through it too. And he says, you go through it like the Savior who walks in the darkness where there is no light and trusts in the name of the Lord and relies on his God. That's the way we do it. Psychologists darkness will not have the last word, by the way. Psychologists tell us that, that one of the worst punishment is light deprivation. And uh, that is what they use a lot of times in military prisons or even criminal prisons. They will put people in darkness and they start to lose their bearings. They start to lose their sense of humanity. They don't know who they are. They don't know where they are. They don't know where the next punch is going to come from. And they just wilt. Their, self, their confidence is gone. And they don't even know where they are. They don't even know who they are anymore. And they do that, and everybody knows that, and they do that so that the, the prisoner becomes more pliable, more submissive, and maybe give up some military secrets of the enemy, or maybe a confession to a crime. But it is punishing. It just leaves you without your humanity. You don't even know who you are anymore. Well, I think soul darkness is just as punishing. Soul darkness is really hard to go through. It disorients us. We lose our way. Our, our mind is saying, when is this going to be over? Our heart is saying, will this ever end? Where am I going our souls are saying, saying, what am I doing here? Why am I here in this place? It is just as punishing as physical light deprivation. But darkness doesn't have the last word. We know that light comes. 
And we know that at the end of the darkness, God is starting something new. That there is a new beginning. And those of us who have gone through darkness and come out the other side, we know that we have survived. And we see a different side of God that we haven't seen before. And that light that we gained when we were in the dark, we can share with other people and say, yeah, this is, this is I know what it's like. And the miraculous thing of all is we have a God who does the same thing. Who says, I know what it's like to go through the darkness. I know what it's like to walk through the darkness. And I will bring new light to you. I had a friend back in Irving who came and worked in our youth group, ministered in our youth group a little bit. He was an um, amazing banjo player. And um, he came a couple of times and he had uh, two severely handicapped daughters. Um, they had two children and both of them had a genetic defect and seriously uh, handicapped, disabled daughters, bedridden daughters. And we were talking about this in one of those rare moments, you know, at night when you let your guard down a little bit. And he was telling, we were talking about this and I was just, I, I, had not, I could not relate. I was 27 years old and I couldn't relate, 28 years old, I couldn't relate to that. And he said, yeah, he said, it's dark. He said, but I've seen a side of God that most people don't get to see. Not that he would choose it. Not that he would want it for anyone. But he sees a side of God that nobody else gets to see. One of my favorite authors, Joan Chittiser, she says, I love the light for it shows the way. Yet I will endure the darkness because it shows me the stars. And what she means by that, she goes on to explain that the stars are that, is that new awareness, that new view of God that I didn't have before, that, that new side that I never saw, that I know that there is light on the other end, that I know that I will survive, and not only survive, I will thrive on into eternity because the servant passed through the darkness too. And he knows what it's like. And he receives the help from God. He receives the vindication from God. He receives the trust from God because he knows what it's like to go through the night. The darkness is perhaps the best place to see God. I wish I could say it wasn't true. But when you're in the light, it's kind of superficial, we take it for granted, but you talk to a blind person and it's totally different. We see things that we can only see at night. The darkness is the best place to see God. I'm gonna ask the worship team guys if you'll come back on up and close us. Father, we thank you that we have a savior who has endured the night who can tell us what it's like, but has come out the other side. Father, I pray for the people in this room and the people at home who are going through darkness, who are walking in the night. And I pray that, they, that you reveal yourself to them in a word, in a friendship, 
maybe a laugh, maybe a word, maybe a scripture, but reveal to them in a supernatural way of the light that you have for them, the love that you have for them. And we look forward to the day when we will see you in all your glory, in lightness. It's in the name of the Savior we pray. Amen.